everyone. Welcome to Commentaries from the Edge. This is Karen Goldberg, and here's what's coming up. I'm so honored and delighted to welcome back Dr. Tony Belise, psychologist, and the fact that Tony, Dr. Belise, Dr. Tony Belise and I last talked actually almost exactly a year ago. And the episode title is Assessing Persons on a Pathway to Violence. I'm not going to detail as much of his background and his uh, ex expertise in so many different areas this morning, but those of you that are interested can read again or hear a more extensive uh, display of his background. But I do want to mention that it seemed as if Dr. Belize, from the time he was a teenager, was drawn to this unique uh, expertise in psychology. And as a person that was deputy director of the Los Angeles County Department of Mental Health here in California for 14 years from the year 2000 to the year 2014, he was there really on the front lines of working in an area called Special Problems Unit with the federal, state, and local law enforcement agencies. And that area, he was training people for understanding persons of concern that may be on that pathway to violence. He also oversaw a group of people in teams that were called school threat assessment response teams. And today we're going to be really focusing on the idea of the threat to school violence, which unfortunately a year later uh, here in the United States, we still are faced with this problem. And the thing that, that um, I just want to kind of summarize a little bit about our last conversation, which really, you know, Dr. Belize was emphasizing looking at people that do commit these acts of violence as people who are having a tremendous feeling of hopelessness and often in a state of isolation and then adding the technology that we now have that's full of messages of hate, they're often directed at people who are vulnerable to possibly committing these threats of violence. So Dr. Belize, thank you, as I did last time, for your contribution to having a better understanding of how to help people that are like that, how to prevent the violence, and really a plea for more people to get together for the kind of training that you do both in public mental health and in private practice as psychologists. So welcome and thank you for being with us today. Thank you, Karen. It's a pleasure to be here. So, you know, I know we wanted to start by kind of looking at here we are, like, like we're saying one year later, and what you see as the current trends that are happening right now. Okay, and, and I think it might be useful to spend a couple of minutes just taking a look at the last two years and the evolution of, of our country, perhaps the world, and also obviously the impact it has on our students, which range in age from uh, you know as young as six years old to 45 and 50. But if you take a look at January 2020, um, some of the milestone events, and, and this becomes important because there was something that triggered everybody. And there were so many things going on that continue to happen that it places the percentage, a small percentage of people at risk 
for uh, violence. But we start off with, uh, you know, January of 2020, Kobe Bryant was killed in a helicopter, helicopter crash. There was a, the Trump impeachment, number one. Then uh, Maria Fuertes was a 92-year-old uh, legal immigrant in New York that was raped and killed by an undocumented individual. And that gave rise to the whole storm about illegal aliens, undocumented people, and immigrants. And it, it, it created, again, just another venue for hate. Um, Harvey Weinstein was charged with rape and sexual battery. Um, and the first pan, the case of uh, the first COVID case was January 30th of 2020. Mm. And that was the beginning of our, uh, our, our loss of our normal pattern of life. February and March, the best picture nominee was The Joker, mm. which was a very good picture, <laughs> but it was really about the dark side and someone drifting into the dark side after having given up. Um, the Boy Scouts of America, Pier 1 Imports, declared Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Roger Stone was given a 40-month prison sentence. Uh, the U.S. Marine Corps general ordered the removal of Confederate symbols from Marine Corps bases. And so that impacted yet another group of people. Um, transgender females were banned from sports in Arizona. The Southwest by South, South by Southwest Festival was canceled due to COVID-19. That was the first time in their history in 34 years. Uh, the Kentucky Derby was canceled for the first time in 70 years. Um, there was the troop withdrawal from Afghanistan. Uh, Breonna Taylor was shot in a no-knock warrant. And then March 16th of 2020 was the nationwide um, school closures. So again, the country began to get hit on multiple fronts with some very, very significant changes. From March through April of 2020, uh, in March 19th, 281,000 people filed for unemployment, which mm -hmm. was a 33% increase. Um, in March, the U.S. box office recorded zero revenues for the first time ever. No <laughs> one went to the movies. Uh, in March 26, 3.28 million filed for unemployment benefits. Uh, CDC recommended masks in public. And to this day, we have quarrels about do you mask, do you not mask? Uh, April 16th, 22 million people filed for unemployment in one month. Yeah. Um, then George Floyd incident in May, which led to the protests and the Black Lives Matter. And while some people saw that as a real positive mood, move towards rights, for certain people. Other people saw it as yet another assault on white America. Um, the Confederate monument debate ensued, which again, pit people on one side or the other. Then there were talks about disbanding police departments. Um, uh, it, it, during that time, the Mississippi, Mississippi State Confederate flag was retired. Um, and it's just the on and on, July 30th, Trump suggest delaying the presidential election. Um, in August, pro athletes began boycotting sports contests, and it continued. Um, chapter 11 in September of Ruby Tuesdays and Pizza Huts, 163 stores. These were like uh, community places, a lot of history for people. Uh, militiamen were arrested for a kidnapped plot of the Michigan governor. 
And again, this, this assault on our traditional stuff. Um, and then again, the elections. Biden won. Trump lost. We had our first African-American female vice president. These were milestones that really shattered uh, the, the normalcy, right? Uh, Trump then begins to challenge the, the election results. And you begin to see an acceleration of conspiracy theories. Um, by December of 2020, uh, COVID-19, the daily cases were going up to 230,000 per day. Um, then we get to the 20, 2021, a year ago. We had the insurrection on January 6th. Uh, the uh, groups such as the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, the Boogaloo Boys, Adam Waffen, Patriot Front, became uh, common names fueled by the media. The Supreme Order of Caucasians, the Big Lie, the Taliban returns, uh, and and uh, the continued uh, piece on defunding the police department, which you know was probably not the best way to term that because it really uh, was an insult to the good uh, men and women that that protect the country. Um, you know, it, it was really an effort to sort of you know re reprioritize things, but the way it came out didn't help anybody. Then you saw an increase in hate crimes, Asians, Muslims, African-Americans, Hispanics, Jews, immigrants. To this day, we have issues on that. So if you look at 2020, 2021, and we're just starting 2022, a tremendous amount of polarization. And not only polarization, but, you know, that is the most amazing summary of uh, just the, the statistics and also the, just the listing of all the happenings in the last two years is enough to really bring to the forefront, you know, how turbulent uh, our outer lives have been and how much that has affected all of our inner lives. You know, absolutely. We're, we're in a period of transition and marked by turbulence. And it's a difficult time because what happened is uh, you know, there was polarization, destabilization, a certain amount of uncertainty, uh, the Trumpian reality of whatever that's going to be next. Um, and what it has caused, and this is why it's important to take a look at things within the, the uh, context. You know, you've got people at all ages being impacted by this one way or another. The kid that goes to school and can't go to school. We've got a uh, a handful, a large group of students that had to do Zoom classes for a year. Um, teachers are reporting that some of these kids don't know how to write. They basically lost a year, year and a yeah. half. Yes. And uh, I see kids in my practice for assessments and um, a lot of the parents report, you know, he just can't do it by Zoom. He just doesn't learn that way. He, he has to be in the class. And what I've told parents is, well, you know, um, he's, he's going to have to learn because this may be a part of the new way. And the sad part is that I have seen children that have excelled in uh, Zoom classrooms, mm -hmm. which only means that there's going to be a wider gap. Right. But in the end, where are we now? Well, our reserves are depleted. Uh, there's a collective amount of exhaustion. It's like, when yes. is this going to end? Right. And that creates vulnerability. And on top of that, this is in the U.S. The global crisis is about the same. You know, to, uh, with, with uh, Russia invading the Ukraine this morning, with the Taliban 
reestablishing itself in Afghanistan. There are a lot of things going on. And in the world of targeted school violence, um, we have incidents in uh, Europe, in the Latin American countries that mirror and copy what has happened here. So, mm-hmm. you know, and, and so what's happened is what are, what are our current crises? Well, the possible overthrow of the U.S. government as we know it, ethnic cleansing, the race war, the establishment of a white ethno state based on Nazism, and the establishment of the caliphate. These are global issues that are far from settled. And so the question then begins when I, you know, this doom and gloom is so what? Where do we go from here as individuals? And the good thing is that a lot of people are resilient. Well, we need that. We need that. Yeah. That when you, when you say the good thing, I mean, yeah, I think we, you know, we have to believe that, uh, well, what you were about to say in terms of understanding resilience and that seems to be a key, uh, but it like when you're exhausted yeah, from right. all the things that you've just, um, that you've just been listing and it's really makes sense that people are exhausted. How, how do you go from recovering from the exhaustion to tapping into your resiliency? Right. And so that's the challenge for, for individual students, for families, for employers, for health responders, uh, a tremendous amount of pressure that really hasn't remitted. You know, the pressure has been constant since 2020 and um, it, it, I remember in 2020, uh, when the, the, uh, the lockdowns were happening, I thought, well, this is January. Um, I'll probably still keep my schedule by June. Everything will be fine, and I'll be doing my usual. Everything got canceled. And, and so it, it's been a, a difficult time for a lot of people. And, you know, I deal with a very small percentage of people that do not handle this very well. And, and so what's happened is while some people are in the process of recovering and shifting as the, the world shifts, other people have gone down the rabbit hole. Yes. Conspiracy theories, um, unemployment, homelessness, um, the, the price of gas, the price of housing. I mean, a lot of things are not because of the particular individual but just the confluence of all of these things that have happened. And, and it leads back to one of the points you mentioned earlier, which is what we see in everybody that's at risk for violence, targeted violence, and that's the marginalization. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. um, so, so an important point, though, to, to think about is this, that, that uh, and this comes from Hemingway, the world breaks everyone. And <laughs> afterwards, yes. some are strong in broken places. You mean Ernest Hemingway, the, yes. the novelist? Yes. yes. And, yeah. and, and the point is, these are tough times and they're uncertain times. But uh, we have to work towards recovering, towards taking care of our own, taking care of our, our uh, family, our children, our family, our neighbors, our colleagues at work, and doing the right thing. And uh, that's sometimes hard to do in an era where the idea is, well, Let's just not argue about our disagreements. Let's fight about it. Well, you know, that's that what you're saying is um, it's very touching to think about 
whether we could be, let's say, as you say, it's a worldwide phenomenon, but if we're just focusing on the United States and we have a society here that feels very broken, it yep. feels broken in the ways in which Hemingway was describing. Right. And we have a society that is, you know, at, at odds with each other. And yet the moment asks for us, if there's ever been a moment that we would come together, that we would help one another, that we would say, you know, it's a tough world out there as it was during World War II, let's say. And, you know, our country came together at that point. Well, not totally, of course, but at this, this, this is the challenge, you know, how do you, um, how do you create a more, you know, a more nurturing environment for the young people who are more prone to be broken by right. this, and more right. prone to the violence when they look around and see a grown-up world in which people are, if not physically violent, people are very verbally violent toward each other. Right, right. No, days. there's undoubtedly there's an there's an air of tension in most public settings and most places because um, you know people aren't you don't you're not sure what the person next to you is going to say or think or do, and that anxiety goes down to the kids as well. So it's a very very difficult time. And, so when I, when I talk about this and, and uh, uh, train our first responders, you know, I, I tell them, you know, we, we mental health people, law enforcement, uh, health responders, crisis teams, um, you know, you need to shift from not only being a, a, uh, a warrior, you know, being the best therapist, the best teacher, the best law enforcement officer, um, but also a guardian. We have to take care of people. We have to shift and not only do our thing, but take the extra step. And unfortunately, what I see in all disciplines, sadly, is this notion of just enough is good enough. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll, I'll clock in, clock out, and and that's it. And that can be uh, sometimes the uh, consequence of depleted reserves and the constant stress. Um, but again, we have to rise up and be better as uh, professionals so that we can help the people that need the help. Because it really starts with, you know, what are you doing at home to take care of things? Mm -hmm. What are you doing in your work shift? How can you make that a positive experience for uh, mm -hmm. the people that you serve, the people that you guide with? And, and that's how you build communities. Well, I think you're, the kind of training you do is is kind of um works you know against that that kind of clocking in and clocking out because you know that's that's kind of a catch-22 because if you operate on that basis then you your your sense of being demoralized just keeps increasing but in, but i think what you train is is to really on on each of these professions and disciplines in the teacher in the law enforcement in the mental health person that if you if you really care if you if you approach what you're doing in a caring way and like you say at home do the same thing then you actually become a more satisfied person because you're 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 actually finding that you're able to have more of a contribution to the work your work life your home life whatever it is than if you're just clocking in and clocking out no absolutely in fact i i often bring this example that if I were to ask you or the audience, uh, who won the best uh, actor award 
for the last three years, most of us wouldn't know. But if I were to ask you, who was someone that made an impact in your life? Mm-hmm. Who was your mentor? Everybody remembers that. And yes. that can be the kindergarten teacher. It can be the, the baseball coach, the soccer coach. But those relationships, those positive relationships, even if they came at a moment in time, uh, are the things that we need to uh, do better and feel better. And that's the, the genesis of, you know, while all of this turbulence and transitions going on, how do you, you know, not allow yourself to get overwhelmed, but be proactive and taking care of yourself and your home and your work environment. And it's effective because you have to believe in a better day. You have to have hope. And, right. and you have to give that hope um, to uh, people that don't have it. You know, I, I was recently, well, a couple of years ago, invited to a, uh, a uh, society, a group of uh, advanced thinkers. These are people that are going to pe- put the people on the moon and go to Mars and all these things. And, and uh, they, ha- they were asking, um, well, how can we help? What can we do? We've got all of this technology, all this experience, all this brilliance. And, and how can we help with this targeted school violence? And my comment to them was, you know, you have to build hope. You have to help the people that aren't tech savvy, that aren't uh, at the head of the line all the time. The people that are sort of lagging behind because of environmental situations, cultural situations, uh, poverty, whatever. Those are the people that need hope. And it's a hard thing to do. Now, obviously, for some people, the, the hope is to uh, go to another planet. You know, that's good. But what about back at the ranch? You know, back at the ranch. So, yeah, back back in the school. Right, where, right. Well, we know, I mean, when that question you were asking the listeners, you could ask the question related to that, which is, um, you know, <clears throat> have you had a teacher? Is there a teacher in your life that made a difference? Right, right. And yeah, I no, think absolutely. almost everyone, everyone that's been able to go forward in their life in some way, definitely can will mention a teacher that made a difference. Absolutely. You know? So. Yeah. It's the same. It's what you're talking about, you know, because sometimes I think, you know, it's hard to define words like hope. But I I would say that the people that cross your life, the people that that um, that you've come in contact with in your life often are the people that at at the worst moments you think of them Mm -hmm. and they're the ones that inspire you to have hope. Exactly. So that's why we never know. I mean, that's why none of us really know what impact we're having on the people around us. We right. may, we may ourselves be a person that gives someone hope and may not even realize it. So why our interactions are so powerful, you know, and I think it kind of brings me to an issue we were going to talk about, which is sort of a new development in thinking about uh, p- groups of people in our society. And that is the parents in relationship to the school violence. Yes. And kind of, uh, you know, you were interested in talking about the Gumby case and this whole idea about, you know, given especially all this time that we've been living through these two years, are parents now in a different position in terms of this idea of school violence? Well, you know, the, the sad part is, is that it continues to happen. 
And despite the, the media and the attention and the efforts towards preventing targeted school violence, we're still left with uh, instances where this has happened, is going to happen, is about to happen. Um, I, I currently provide consultation to um, universities and uh, school districts and actually also workplace establishments. And the sad part is, is that, um, you know, we, we haven't been able to turn the corner on developing more effective uh, prevention strategies. Um, there are lots of stuff out there. There are a lot of trainings out there. Um, there. There are a lot of guidelines, but, you know, from where I sit, um, it's sad that not everyone is as well trained as they should be. And by that, I refer to administrators, mental health, school administrators, mental health professionals, uh, teachers, uh, law enforcement communities. Uh, there's a big difference from one place to another and uh, on, on how they approach these things. And that makes a big difference. Definitely. Um, I mean, I think you, you'd mentioned in our last conversation on the subject was about the idea of, you know, people, sometimes one of the great preventions is uh, young people who are often the ones committing these, these violent acts are people who are not getting any attention. Right. right. No, one's, no one's looking at them. No one's talking with them. Uh, they're hidden away. And, uh, well, getting back to the Gumby case, what really, I mean, I think there's a big puzzle, puzzlement for people to kind of understand what in the world happened there that you would have a young person come to school with a weapon in his backpack, actually sit down and get attention from a teacher, from the administrators, and have his parents called in. And still the act happened. Right. And, and uh, Ethan Crumbly example is what I run into a lot, which is um, uh, something we can talk about. I'll, I'll take a step back and, and take a look at these things from another dynamic and then talk directly about uh, the Crumbly case. I don't yes. like to really talk specifically about these cases without having all the facts because, right. you know, it, it, it's, it's not useful. No, but, that's true. And the armchair quarterback's always pretty good. Yes. But, but let's take a step back and take a look at um, uh, from another perspective. One, uh, the small town phenomena and the idea that it won't happen here. And even in Los Angeles County, we have school districts, we have communities that say, nah, it's not going to happen here. It's not going to happen here. Right. And so part of the whole thing about target school violence is it's low probability, but it's high consequence. And so mm -hmm. one of the things we find is denial. It's not going to happen here. And when people deny it, they don't plan, they don't prepare, and they don't have a survival mindset. And so oftentimes what I see here in L.A. County, I'm still active in this, very active in this, is that um, while there may be large policies and programs and all this stuff that the administrator doesn't have the skill set mm -hmm. or their their threat team is not fully prepared 
And it's extremely anxiety provoking to have this, to confront one of these things. Yes. It's very, very difficult. But when you don't have training, if you don't have a, something in your hard drive to pull up and say, okay, this is familiar. This is what I should do. It becomes very difficult. And, and oftentimes what, you know, I talk about is that when, when there's a threat uh, and it's, uh, you know, a, a legitimate threat, um, there's bound to be chaos on the campus with the team, with the threat assessment team. What you don't want is panic. Yes. And panic happens when you're not trained. When you're ne- really not trained, then, you know, it, it becomes very difficult. And so the denial will paralyze you or it can, well, the, the denial can create the fear and the fear either paralyzes you or mobilizes you. Mm-hmm. And so what I try and tell people is, look, hey, you know, it might happen. Um, and so why not plan so that if it does, you're prepared. And, and this is an interesting development. Um, if you look at some of the major events, Littleton, Colorado, which is where Columbine happened. And to this day, we have students imitating the Columbine shooters. And, and they're able to keep that alive because it's in the media. But Littletown, the square miles was 13.9, population of 41,000. Blacksburg, Virginia, where Sun Wei Cho did his shooting. 19 square miles, 42,000. Uh, Adam Lanza in Newtown, Connecticut. Uh, Sandy Hook. Large square miles, 59, 59 square miles, but 28,000 inhabitants. Um, Chardon, Ohio, where TJ Lane. It was a small community, 4.6 miles. Wow. Population of 5,000. Isla Vista, 1.8 miles, 23,000. That's where... Uh, Elliot Roger did his thing. Uh, Christian Mercer in Roseburg, Oregon. Small area, 10.2 miles, 21,000. Parkland, Florida, Nikki Cruz. Uh, square miles of 14.3 miles, 31,000 population. Santa Fe, Texas, 17.3. And the Crumbly Place in Oxford Township, square miles of 35.2, and the population was 20,000. So it happens in these communities that some people would describe as bedroom communities. Um, the recent shooting we had in Saugus High School was in the Santa Clarita area, uh, which again had, there, there are three suburbs in that area. All of them are known for uh, being safe communities, being, you know, place you'd want to live, et cetera. And yet it happened there. And so I think what happens is one, the denial. Mm-hmm. I'm going to leave the big city and come to one of these places and I'll be safe and my kids will be safe. Or you grew up in that environment and it's been a safe city all your life. And unfortunately, it only takes one time. Right. Right. So um, what, what I challenge some of the smaller communities with is this, you know, this isn't about money. You know, I used to say, you know, the challenge is getting the funding. What I talk about now is, the reality is there is no funding. There's no funding coming. You mm-hmm. have to have vision. Mm-hmm. You have to have leadership. You have to be able to, to take it on, right? You mentioned earlier the, the uh, special problems unit that I developed. Um, that was with no additional funding. Mm-hmm. 
But it came, I, it, it dawned on me that as we were the threat team and dealing with these students that uh, were at risk for targeted school violence, that we also had adults in the same position and they had nowhere to go. So, and also at around that era, we began to see that law enforcement was realizing that a lot of these people um, had mental health issues. And, right, and so there was right. that, that combination of, you know, you've got, a, you've got to take care of them both on the mental health side and on the legal side. And those partnerships make the big difference, right? Right. And you're, you're always, I know you're always walking that parallel path of both, you know, training for prevention of any kind of violent act. And at the same time, you're, you're lobbying or advocating for the prevention side, which is, you know, receiving more mental health services, allowing people to be more connected to mental health services. So, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a parallel path, really, that we need to, to really walk on. That you, right, right. You do it all the time. But I was just thinking, you know, not, like you say, not emphasizing one particular case, but this new kind of approach of thinking about the parents as being um, responsible and therefore, you know, accepting the guilt for the violence of perhaps one of their children. Uh, right. Acts of one of their children. What What do you think about that development? Well, one of the things that that um, we do when we have a student that is identified as being at risk for targeted school violence is we look at the subject, the student, within the context of his life. So you can't just sit down with the student and interview them. Uh, you have to get a 360 view. One of those involves the parents. And there are parents that are uninformed. And when it's brought to their attention, they act and they cooperate and they want to do what's best for their child. And those parents are seen as, you know, protective factor. A parent that's concerned didn't know, but when they find out, they, they, will, they will do what it takes to help and become part of the safety net, the support system for the students. On the extreme end, um, we have, I have run into parents that um, become incredibly hostile, have no insight. For example, uh, a uh, parent that has uh, no qualms about leaving a loaded shotgun on the kitchen cabinet because uh, it, despite the fact that their, their son is uh, showing signs of, of uh, violent ideation, um, in some cases, we have had parents that uh, purchased uh, uh, weapons for their students. Uh, this wasn't the first time with the Crumbly case wasn't the first time where a parent has uh, uh, either knowingly or unknowingly uh, given the student the means by which to carry out their act. Uh, I, I can think of Alvaro Rafael Castillo, who... Uh, was about, he's in the eighth grade student when Columbine happened, and he became obsessed with it. And uh, he slept with his firearms. He had his mother take him to visit Columbine to see the site, um, and then acted out years, years, at 18, right? So 
you know, you, you begin to wonder about the mindset of the parents. And sometimes it's about education. Uh, sometimes you have to accept the fact that uh, they're not going to be part of the safety net. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes they're actually the ones that are uh, indirectly uh, creating the marginalization and the sense of hopelessness that the parent, that the student has. With Ethan, for example, and this comes from the po- prosecutor's notes, uh, the parents knew about six months before the shooting that he wasn't doing well. Um, and this is an interesting thing. Loss is critical in all of this. His only friend had moved at the end of October. Their family dog had died, and he seemed sadder than usual. And he was also sending disturbing texts about his state of mind, right? Now, the prosecutor alleges that the reason the parents uh, were not picking up on this is that they were very much invested in their horses and also, from the prosecutor's statements, their extramarital affairs. So the parents were very busy and very preoccupied, right? and they, you know, and he had done some behavior such as torturing animals, leaving a bird's Ooh, baby bird's yeah. head in a jar in his bedroom floor. Then he took it to the, then he took it to the bathroom and t- at school, and basically going out of his way to say I need help. And, and I'll tell you, um, this is something that we see all the time when 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 I'm called to a school or the start team would be called to a school and interview the individual. Um, and, and it seemed like it was a very, very low risk. Nevertheless, it was an opportunity for an intervention, right? Why did this individual do these things? Well, maybe he's not going to be the next school shooter, but he clearly needs help. Let's get him some help, right? So sometimes it was, right, it was actually a positive result. Exactly. Well, that's the thing that, that people are, they're marginalized. They're isolated. Most of us a common reaction for people in crisis is to isolate. You just go into yourself and, and you carry that problem in your head and you mix it around and match and, and sometimes you stay there, right? But we always talk to people and teach them is don't worry, don't never worry alone. Talk about your troubles. We had a 17-year-old that we hospitalized in a psychiatric facility. No 17-year-old wants to go into a psych hospital. When he came back, he said, you know what? Um, when I went there, it was the best thing for me. He said, I saw people that had more problems than me, but I also saw people that had problems like me. Now I know I can fix things. I have hope. Because oftentimes the students will just worry in their own little bubble and they isolate. The parents aren't watching. With Ethan, his parents purchased his nine millimeter four days prior to the shooting, right? Um, and then the mother minimized uh, with him by text when he was reprimanded for being caught looking up ammunition during class. And so we talk about behaviors, right? If someone has a gun and they're researching how to find the ammunition and he's leaving uh, the, the head of a bird in the school bathroom, those are clues. Those are clues. Yeah, they, they, um, they, it was like it's like screaming loud and clear. Yeah, yeah, um, and yeah. and sometimes the clues are not that obvious. Those are very obvious clues, you right. know. Sometimes right. they're not, but but the fact that 
that people, it's, it seems as if, you know, getting back to what you had said about the isolation, but also just uh, being, being careful of the fact that young people need someone to keep looking at them, to keep paying attention to them, to be invested in their sense of well-being. It makes all the difference in the world when we develop a safety net for the student, because the safety net is to keep everyone safe. It also functions as a support for the individual, because for the first time, they're getting positive attention. They're getting a therapist. They're, they're, they're being monitored. And we change our behavior when we're being watched. You know? And so um, you know, there were a lot of things that, that uh, could have happened that didn't happen. That's what we see all the time. And, and, and I just had to mention this, too, that um, this target school violence thing it's pretty active. Uh, you know, uh, we intervene successfully a lot of times and just can't talk about it. But the prevention works. You just have to have the right people with the mindset that they can make a difference and they're going to make the extra step. Some administrators don't want that attention. And what we find sometimes is they want to do it on their own. And it's a funny thing because... Um, that may have made sense back in the uh, 2000s, early 2000s, you know, where, where people were sort of struggling to find out, well, what do I do with this student that came in and said he's thinking about shooting up to school? What do I do, you know? Um, but now there's so much training, there's so much situational awareness of so many programs. And what I have found is that in some places, there isn't anything. A community doesn't have a threat team. A school district doesn't have a threat team. In some places, they have a threat team, but they're not working well together or they're not trained, right? So oftentimes, you can get a, uh, a protocol, slap it together, put some people in there, and boom, you've taken care of that. Now, what's the next challenge mm -hmm. for today? Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, it's, it's a lot about building and developing. For, for the smaller communities, when I talk about funding, I tell them, you know, you're, you're, you're probably not going to get the funding, Right. I said, but shame on you. If you're in a small community, you should know your students. Yes. You yes, should know exactly. the people at risk. You yes. should know. You know, so there's no excuse that, well, you know, I don't have, uh, you know, the, count, the resources of Los Angeles County. Well, to the START program, which to this day has not had an act of targeted school violence in L.A. County where START was involved, that started with six people for 12 million inhabitants. Right. And, Exactly. And, and 600,000 students of, you know, first through six and on and on and on. You don't need a lot. You, you, because you just, it's, a, it's talking about commitment. You're, mean, you're talking more about commitment and, and, and about imagination yeah, to, and, to put something together. And collaboration. We were successful because um, I knew that I would not be able to do it alone. So I collaborated with the local police departments, LAPD, sheriffs the smaller communities, Burbank, Long Beach, Pasadena, uh, collaborated with them, also with the school districts. And we held joint trainings. Again, the training, the development of situational awareness is what gets people to understand this and do something other than panic. Yes. Um, you know, it would, be, it would really be, from all that you're describing, uh, it could be really wonderful if, for instance, the United States... Federal Department of Education would have, you know, have this as a campaign nationally. 
mm-hmm. to really bring it up, you know, bring the profile up about the importance of all the things that you're talking about. And in particular, you know, the concept of training and the concept of uh, mental health. I mean, I must say in Los Angeles County here in California, I understand that the school district here has been hiring a large number of mental health clinical people to come onto the campuses in response to much of what you listed as knowing that the students, you know, kindergarten through 12th grade have been so particularly impacted by these last two years. Right, exactly. That's, and, that's a positive, at least right. for, for Los Angeles County. Right, and, and, and I'll be critical of that for just one, one way, that that's a real good idea, real good investment of money. But if they're not trained, it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. It's just putting out there a nice, a nice package that has no teeth. Mm-hmm. And, and by that, I mean that um, there is training, and I hope they're getting the training, on the subtle signs of students in crisis. Yes. And, and so an understanding the connection of these other things like bullying, truancy, substance abuse, uh, relationships, that, that all of these things that are uh, areas of intervention. That, right. that, that if they don't see that, because I used to, I'll, I'll challenge new teams, new threat assessment teams. Well, what are you looking for now? You know, uh, yeah, are, are you going to be looking for the, the student that's coming with two uh, rifles to school and that's when you're going to intervene? I go, no, it, it, it's the, the, the stuff that all the clues prior to that that you have to be looking for. Right, the student that um, eats lunch alone all the time, the A student that suddenly starts getting a D and C's and starts dropping out. We used to think in the old days that that uh, truancy was because the student was either out getting high, doing malice, or whatever, or, or out with their partner, or just out out having a good time. Right, and and what we found in LA County was a lot of these students were not going to school because they were being bullied. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and we frequently will encounter schools where the, the teachers, the, the administrators will say, there's no bullying here. We've got policies. And the teachers will say, you kidding me? Or, you know, I, I can walk on campus and a lot of people can do this. You walk on campus and just by looking around during lunchtime, you can see the child that's at risk for being bullied. Mm-hmm. And they don't right. come forward. You know, because they're, they're, they're ashamed, they're embarrassed. Yes. But yeah. so those are the prevention programs that need to happen. But those are also the kinds of behavioral manifestations that these new mental health teams need to take a look at so that they can intervene way in advance. Which is, which is really the tremendous contribution, Dr. Belize, that you've made to this whole phenomenon and continue to make and, uh, we're very fortunate in Los Angeles County, but really because you, I know uh, your background that you've, you've actually worked all over the world um, in places like as far away as Australia. And I know you will continue and, and I'm just very grateful for you being able to talk about this today. And thank you so much for being here and for your continuing contribution to solving uh, this problem and and making a, a better community for all of us. Thank you very much, Karen. A pleasure as always. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.